Hey now, we are getting over and I am the Silver King, Adam Silverstein, here to lead you through these hard times that uh, with the latest edition of the Getting Over Wrestling Podcast. That's right, we are back once again and this show is taking on a little bit of a different turn than originally expected because yes, we are here talk about everything that happened in the world of AEW over the last week. We will also be talking about New Japan's Dominion 612. Uh, I guess it's a pay-per-view technically. It airs on New Japan World. I don't know what you call it, but their special annual event, their second biggest event of the year. Uh, We'll be talking about that, especially as it pertains to the AEW NJPW Forbidden Door pay-per-view going down at the end of the month. But continuing what has been an extremely newsworthy week in the world of professional wrestling, we will start the show with a conversation about the investigation, the ongoing investigation into Vince McMahon, John Laurinaitis, and largely WWE as a whole that was broken on Wednesday. So yes, there is an absolute to discuss on today's show. And you know what? The news isn't stopping, uh, Chris, because... There is other news out there that we're not necessarily going to talk about today, but just quickly off the top here, uh, there is a report that Randy Orton may potentially be sidelined through the remainder of the year due to back issues that I thought on television were completely kayfabe and just a reason to keep him out of TV for a couple of months. And there's another report out there that Sasha Banks's lawyers have been in conversations with WWE about getting her a release from the company. So those are, of course, two massive news items that uh, the Sasha we would certainly cover in an instant reaction podcast if it is going to happen. But Chris, it's nonstop right now. Of course, welcome Vintage Chris Vanini to the show. I forgot to do that before I started mentioning you by name. Um, but Chris, there's a lot going down. It seems like every major wrestler across WWE and to some degree, AEW is getting injured. People are out of action. Um, there's stuff happening from a legal standpoint. I can't catch my breath. Jeff Hardy's getting arrested for a DUI on Monday. I, I can't catch my breath. This is one of the wilder weeks I can remember in professional wrestling. Yeah, good to be here back on the Thursday show. I, uh, I, I, I've since gone to the doctor about this cough that I can't break. They gave me a bunch of allergy meds. I'm on those. I'm hoping to make it through this podcast okay. But it was a look, look, we were pretty negative on Tuesday show. There, there's no doubt about it. And frankly, with all the news coming out, it's kind of uh, at least hard not to ignore some of these uh, not so great topics going on in wrestling. But yeah, I mean, we had Wednesday and you've just got everything going on at once. So many different things uh, to talk about controversy. There, there's never a dull moment in, in pro wrestling. There, there really isn't. And, I mean, uh, we, we were negative for a really good reason Tuesday and I turn around Wednesday And I try to have a really positive episode of the show, like the interview with Raquel Rodriguez. If you folks missed it, please listen to it. What a delight Raquel is. I mean, it was I've never like I I know people criticize her for like smiling on TV. Uh, They're like, why do they make her smile now? She did it the entire interview. She's a happy person. She's very (laughs) nice, like exceptionally kind. I had a little conversation with her offline as well. She's awesome. I enjoyed NXT on Tuesday, so I was very positive on Tuesday's show, but it's this small, like bright light in the midst of swirling shit in the industry of professional wrestling. A lot of it obviously having to do with things happening, not on television, Vince McMahon, of course, what we're going to talk about today and, and the Jeff Hardy DUI stuff, but we also just can't get away from like 
the biggest stars in the industry being injured and out of action during a period of time that is very important for both WWE and AEW. And it just seems like it's shitstorm after shitstorm, of course, some bigger than others, uh, some manufactured, some, you know, happenstance. And I don't know, man, it's like an albatross on the wreck of on the neck of professional wrestling right now that it cannot remove. Yeah, no, that that's a good way to put it. I, I mean, look, there there has always been kind of that dirty part of pro wrestling, absolutely that dark side of the ring, so to speak. Uh, that's always been around, and a lot of people remember it from days past. But the industry as a whole has worked for a long time to try to get past that. Mm-hmm. And yet, the news that comes out this week, especially with Jeff Hardy and Vince McMahon, uh, is a reminder that there's still uh, a long way to go. And, and there's sh- and there's shit like this that goes on. In every industry. I mean, I yes, hate, to, that, yep, I hate yep. to kind of put it out there, but do you know how many NFL players get arrested for DUIs multiple times, yes. right? Do you know how many um, of investigations like the one going into WWE that we're going to break down in a moment happen across corporations in sports and media, you know, unrelated, the NFL, uh, you know, the presidency of the United States? I mean, it, it's, mm-hmm. it's wild. Again, that doesn't make any of them acceptable. It's just it's. This is not a WWE. It's not a wrestling issue. It's a larger issue. These incidents uh, that we've had to cover this week that just happen to be within the realm of professional wrestling. So we're going to get into all of that in a moment, really quick off the top, because it would not be an episode of the Getting Over Wrestling podcast if I did not remind you off the top that this show is always. So don't forget to head on over to Apple Podcasts and Spotify. Leave those five-star ratings on Apple. Also leave a review. Let people know how much you love the show, why you listen, and why they should subscribe. And please do not forget to follow us on Twitter. There's really no better time than right now. Uh, at Getting Overcast, we we react to news as it happens. We tweet every single time we have a brand new show that gets released. And at this rate, it feels like we're going to be doing the show five days a week uh, between last week and this week. It's, it's nonstop. I can't catch my breath. I'm exhausted. Um, you know, let's hope things get a little bit slower through the end of the month here, Chris. Uh, but look, uh, let's not waste any more time. Let's get into what is indeed the main event of this show. And that is the fact that the WWE chairman and CEO, Vincent Kennedy McMahon, is officially under, uh, I guess, what would best, best be called internal investigation. Uh, there was an explosive Wall Street Journal story uh, published on Wednesday in which it was revealed that WWE's board of directors is investigating Vince McMahon for allegedly making hush money payments to a former employee with whom he supposedly had an affair. So here are the bullet point allegations which came to WWE. This is maybe the strangest part of the entire thing as a series of anonymous emails from a supposed friend of that former employee. And that is what kicked off this investigation. So the allegations, McMahon paid $3 million in January, 2022, as part of a settlement with the now former employee who also signed a non-disclosure agreement. There were personal funds, which on the surface doesn't necessarily lighten the fact that he paid someone off, but this was you know, alleged to be as part of an affair that he was having with the person. McMahon hired the woman originally as a paralegal in 2019 with a $100,000 a year salary. I did double check. That is not abnormal for an experienced paralegal at a large corporation. But then he doubled her salary to $200,000 
reportedly after a sexual relationship started. Obviously, on the surface, that sounds like quid pro quo and is nowhere near normal. Uh, McMahon allegedly, quote unquote, gave her like a toy to John Laurinaitis, who is the head of talent relations right now for WWE. And when that happened, when I guess she left his employee to Laurinaitis's employee, she moved from being a paralegal to Laurinaitis's assistant. And that happened in 2021 when he was rehired uh, as the head of talent relations. He was gone for the company for, for a period of time. And then while investigating these claims, other NDAs involving McMahon and Laurinaitis were unearthed. This investigation began in April with outside counsel appointed by the board of directors of WWE. McMahon, through his lawyer, Jerry McDivitt, claims the relationship did happen. He admits to that, but he says it was consensual. And that only really matters because it takes the coercion piece off the board. Now, it's not listed in the Wall Street Journal report that she was coerced, but that is clearly what they are investigating, along with quid pro quo in terms of using company funds to double her salary from $100,000 to $200,000. It should also be noted that Paul Levesque and Stephanie McMahon remain part of the WWE board of directors. Stephanie did step down from her corporate role, but not the board when she stepped down last month. And given this investigation started back in April, she obviously knew that this was something that is ongoing. Of course, I should also mention that Nick Khan is on the board as well. And these are more personal notes, Chris, but Dave Meltzer has since reported that Vince's marriage to Linda is basically one of convenience at this point. They haven't been together in years. And obviously, Johnny, as we know, is married to the mother of the Bella twins, but she's also been dealing with a bunch of neurological health issues, as we saw on TV. So it's really tough to say what their relationship is like or what's happening there because that show ended. So before we get into the impact of this, Chris, and where it can all go, I obviously just laid out a lot of information as to why this is definitely the biggest scandal that WWE has faced since the steroid trial in the early 90s. And after laying it out, is there anything that you kind of want to say uh, here off the top? Yeah, I think it's good that you laid out all those points. I, I don't remember if exactly what you said this or not, but um, it, the story also said that Vince paid the woman with his own money, um, the, the $3 million settlement um, as well. So this is not, at least thus far, it doesn't appear like anything illegal is being alleged. Um, well, if if she was coerced, then it would right. be. And it, if it, and it, if her salary was doubled from one hundred thousand to two hundred thousand, then that would be quid pro quo through the company using company funds for a sexual relationship. So it could be, but as of right now, they are in an investigative right. state and they are figuring right. out whether these things are indeed um, right actionable. Uh, basically, yeah, and, and a big part of this is is business practices, basically like. Can you trust the person in charge because they're doing these type of things uh, on their own or with company funds or without company funds? Um, this is a board investigation. This is at this point not a legal investigation. Again, at this point, things can change. Um, so it, it, it's interesting. And it comes, you know, not long after Stephanie said she was taking a leave from the company. And we said at the time we didn't know what that was about. We didn't want to speculate. We still don't want to speculate. But this is now another McMahon, who's just kind of there's just been a lot of stuff going around this company and involving the family. I know there is also a report from Brandon Thurston at WrestleNomics that it looked like a lot of WWE shares were sold yesterday before 
story came out, that could be a potential legal thing. This is very early on. This is all we know is this Wall Street Journal story. And I'm glad you laid it out the way you did, because the story is generally behind a paywall. I think a lot of people didn't maybe read all those details, but those right. details specifics are very important. And that's why we wanted to lay them all out uh, as you did. And, and I will say, I, I, I personally, I mean, you can if you want, as we continue talking about it. I'm not touching the stock stuff because... It could be numerous things. What he reported was a lot of stock was traded, but the market mm-hmm. is also crashing and content is seen as a stable mm-hmm. piece. So it's like, I shouldn't say the market's crashing. It's 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 losing uh, points every single day, significant amounts yes. at this point, but it's not crashing yet. Uh, but, but so I don't want to get into the speculation around that. I mean, Kevin Dunn right. recently sold a shit ton of stock. Maybe he knew this was coming down. Maybe he didn't. Maybe it's coincidental. Like to get into that, you know, I, th- I thought that a lot of his reporting, and I'm not trying to shit on the guy, but a lot of it seemed speculative at best, sure. um, whereas we have something concrete here, obviously, that we can actually discuss. Yeah. So, and yeah. so let's go ahead and, and do that. The big question here, obviously, is not just, well, is Vince McMahon going to get a fine? Is John Laurinaitis potentially going to be removed from the organization again? It's what the hell in totality is going to happen to WWE. And I think there are short-term aspects and long-term aspects that we can look at. And I hate to be despondent about this, but as I mentioned at the top here, we've literally seen almost identical stories involving people just like Vince McMahon. In fact, literal friends of Vince McMahon, and you know who I'm talking about here, without anything significant happening as a result. There's technically, as you pointed out, nothing illegal about using personal funds and having someone sign an NDA to hide a sexual relationship as long as long as it was entered into consensually. The question here is whether that person was coerced into the relationship and or coerced into signing the NDA and whether that coercion can be proved because the fact that there's an anonymous person sending an email claiming that this happened to her friend doesn't mean that the friend wants that out there, doesn't mean that the friend is willing to confirm And it also doesn't mean just based on her words that they can say that definitely happened. Uh, My initial take in terms of the immediate fallout is that John Laurinaitis is gone, Uh, whether it's because he's the fall guy or he's just one of the dominoes. I do not see how he survives this, given all of the other shit that has been rumored about him over the years. Uh, The investigators apparently are digging into this, not just from hey, show me other NDAs that you guys have, but into an HR standpoint about how the entire WWE organization is run. It would honestly be shocking if he's not soon gone, given his position. The fact that he was even hired back to this role in 2021 was a stunner, as we mentioned on this podcast previously. As far as Vince goes, you know, it's impossible to give an answer. Um, I could see him skating by. It's extremely difficult to remove a chairman and CEO who has the majority of the voting shares and has two family members on the board that is handling the investigation. Now, I'm not saying that Paul and Stephanie would would, you know, do a cover up into into the into the uh, investigation or hide anything. I'm just saying you need voting power to remove someone. And I don't know that there is going to be enough here based on what we've heard already to remove. Vince McMahon, a guy who has survived many other scandals and incidents over decades upon decades. Perhaps there's a leave of absence that they can find 
if there is coercion or quid pro quo. But I'm not even sure that would actually change much day to day, given this is the type of guy who would install a puppet who does his bidding as he like commands WWE from the shadows. I'm not trying to get into like um, the territory of uh, what's our show on HBO. I'm forgetting it. Something in my mind. Succession. Succession. I'm not trying to get into like Logan Roy succession territory here, (laughs) but it's very possible. And that happens all the time across major organizations, both in media and out of media. Now we can talk about the Nick Khan aspect of this maybe after Chris, but I did want to lay that out there and kind of say what my expectations are. And unfortunately, why I am despondent about this, not that I would want people who would potentially be innocent uh, to go down, you know, uh, you know, for no reason, if they are at fault here, I just am pessimistic about at least Vince actually facing any serious consequences. The point about Vince and the McMahon family controlling the majority shares is extremely important for the reasons that you laid out. And the the only the, the only way I could see major change coming is if this impacts the business of WWE outside the day to day wrestling. Do TV do do partners back out, whether it's TV par- uh, partners for various sideshows or sponsors or these type of things where WWE starts losing money in a tangible way because people don't want to be associated with, with him and the company. And that's where something like maybe a leave of absence is needed because you kind of got to separate Vince from WWE while whoever's doing all these various things wants to be involved with WWE. I, mean, I should also note has, really quick. I should yeah. also note really quick. His lawsuit with Oliver Luck over the XFL deal, that is going to trial as well. So he's dealing with this yes. and he's going to trial for the XFL shit. Sorry. Yes. Uh, yeah. Apparently a nine minute settlement call yesterday as well. So or some sort of uh, call yesterday. So that's going on. So, yeah, the, the, the spot where I think does any major change happen is basically, I think, if outside parties, partners don't want to be associated with, with WWE because of that. And then mm-hmm. maybe that convinces something to happen. Um, smaller level, if Vince does take a leave of absence, then somebody else is booking the show. And that could mean a lot of things. It, 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 we, we really don't know. It could it could potentially change the you know uh, in-ring product if, if that happens because we know how it involves Vince's day-to-day with all that stuff. So small, big, that that's kind of where things are. But... It, that, that I think you're saying despondent or not expecting anything big at this point, just based on what's out so far, I think it's a good way to put it. For sure. Now, the, the other aspect here, and I'm only addressing it because it's like the thing that every person who is commenting on this is tweeting or commenting or talking about. And there seems to be this like lack of understanding about what Nick Khan's role in WWE, <laughs> WWE is right now. As like, like, there's a lot of people that think or either they think this or they're joking about it. And I can't really tell, but it's so many people that it doesn't feel like it's a joke. They think Nick Khan went into WWE and is in the midst of staging a coup like that. He got triple H forced out. He got Stephanie forced out. He, you know, somehow knew that this stuff was happening and got someone to send an anonymous email. And he's trying to take over the board from the McMahons and install himself as the chairman of WWE. Now, he may well wind up in that position. I mean, he is the current number two from a power standpoint. And if Vince does step aside and if Stephanie isn't there, Shane hasn't been there, Triple H 
is indeed relegated to a different role, perhaps more so now than ever because of his health and not necessarily because of other things, then he may well step up into that power position. Um, There's also a scenario where if WWE is facing major issues with signing new television contracts, facing the outside pressure that you're suggesting, Chris, that they feel like, you know what, maybe this is it. Maybe we need to sell the company. And perhaps Nick Khan puts together some investors and they're the ones who ultimately buy WWE. But I do believe, despite those things, that suggesting that this is some purposeful coup that has been planned by Nick Khan, uh, and I'm not saying the guy isn't smart because he clearly is smart, but that he's some like, you know, genius who's put this, who got an offer from Vince and joined the company and said, you know what, I'm going to steal this out from under WWE. I, I, I don't see that being a reality in any way. And I'm honestly kind of floored that so many people have bought into this mindset that Nick Khan is responsible for everything that's happening in WWE, even to the point that when the releases were happening, people were saying Nick Khan was responsible, not just for the releases happening, but who was being released. The the cost cutting in WWE, that was a organizational decision. Now, certainly Nick Khan has a lot of power and it did happen after he got hired. But those are things that Vince McMahon needs to approve. The talent, the individual talents being released. Nick Khan wasn't making those decisions. Vince McMahon and others were making those decisions. So I feel like Nick Khan gets a lot of credit almost for things that he is not actually doing, despite the fact that he is in the position to benefit most from a major shakeup in the corporate structure of WWE. Yeah, I mean, just we know how wrestling fans are. They they always look for conspiracy. They always look for things happening in the shadows. I think a, a lot of the people I've seen pointing it out have been making jokes about it. I, I I think I think there's a section of people who are making jokes about it. I think there's another section who think it's real because they just kind of buy into all that stuff. There, it's there's there's no signs of any of that stuff. You know, it's it's all just people talking on the internet there, you know if, if something changes then we'll talk about that but there's there's no reason to to, to see that right now it's just kind of a it, it's a fun story i think that a lot of people like to just make up and kind of go with because you know the mcmahon family has been kind of secretive and kind of always kind of controlling in their in their narratives and stuff like that but yeah it's i i I wouldn't put any stock into that right now. One of my biggest issues with wrestling fans, the IWC, whatever you want to call it, and I am not talking about the getting overheads here because I want to make it very clear. I did not receive a single tweet or DM about any of this shit. And you guys, when you do uh, communicate with us and ask questions, you are not making the dumb comments that I'm about to talk about. But it does seem like a large percentage of the IWC, of wrestling fans in general, don't understand that things happen outside the context of wrestling. Like, like they look at this uh, investigation into Vince McMahon and they take it as a WWE bad thing when it's actually, you know, if you were going to categorize it uh billionaire with, you know, unilateral power in a company, bad thing, right? Like, like, as I said at the onset, th- this is far more similar to things that have happened in other major corporations than it is something similar that's happened within the world of professional wrestling. It is not, a lot of these stories that happen in wrestling are not insular to wrestling. They are things that happen in 
culture, you know, in, in politics, in business. And I think that's lost a lot of times when we have these conversations. Um, even something as little as like WWE's camera cuts. It's like WWE's the worst. Uh, all these camera cuts, they make me nauseous. Their product sucks. Nothing else does this. Have you ever watched the challenge on MTV? Have you ever seen a Fast and Furious movie? Count the camera cuts in a one minute action scene in Fast and Furious. You're, you'll lose your lunch if you try to do it. And I feel like people lose sight of that a lot, that they think that everything like WWE is the root of all evil or or Jeff Hardy is the the worst person in the entire world. I mean, I'm, trust me, I am not supporting the fact that the guy has had multiple DUIs in a very short period of time and is putting people's lives in danger. What I'm what I'm pointing out is he is not unique in this. And Vince is not unique as a, a power hungry, uh, unilateral executive at a major corporation. These are things that happen. And they go far beyond the world of professional wrestling. So I hope that when people listen to our podcast and when we talk about these things, you understand that we're looking at them from that greater perspective. I do think, Chris, it helps that you and I come from the world of sports, not really the world of wrestling. And we do look at a lot of things, especially when it comes to contracts, signings, people wanting to be released and cut and, and people getting cut and all those things. We take them in a different light than many others do because we have that additional experience. You know, there's a lot to be said about um, just having a, a depth of knowledge. And I'm not talking about you and I. I'm talking about our, our listeners and, and the portion of wrestling fans that aren't like what I'm currently describing. But having the depth of knowledge beyond the world of wrestling, understanding media literacy, understanding what it means uh, to be under investigation in an internal standpoint versus under investigation by the FBI or law enforcement. These are all different things. As of right now, no one is suing WWE. They are not under threat of lawsuit. Now, that could happen. Absolutely. If something is unveiled and this person who did sign the NDA was coerced and it's found that she was, then she can sue for for you know for uh, additional payments coming out of that um, or to have the NDA completely withdrawn and ripped up. There's options there as well. So I, I just feel like that needs to be understood that this is not a wrestling story. This is a WWE corporate story. And I hope that through our conversation that was laid out. Yeah. And, and, and like we say with a lot of these breaking news stories is that this is still early on. All we know is this Wall Street Journal report. There, there will be more certainly to Absolutely. come out yeah. in, in the days and in, in months probably ahead. And we'll react you know, to that point, we just wanted to, it's obviously the biggest story in, in pro wrestling right now. So, so we had to talk about it. We had to talk about it now, even though this is the AEW show. Um, and, uh, yeah, it's a real mess. It, it's an absolute real mess, not an unprecedented mess. And, you know, we'll be very in interested to see where it goes, but, uh, that's kind of where, where things stand. I think. I agree. I think we can cut it off there and continue the conversation as more develops coming out of it, but you made a really good point. No shows this week were what they were supposed to be. Our WWE show on Tuesday included an AEW element with Jeff Hardy. Our NXT show, which was supposed to be with this show on Thursday, I bumped it to Wednesday and I included a WWE element with Raquel Rodriguez. And now here we are on Thursday uh, for our third show of the week, talking AEW and New Japan, but leading off with Vince McMahon and WWE. So with that, let's actually move into what the show is supposed to be about, which is indeed the AEW and JPW Forbidden Door build. There's a lot to talk about. 
you know, coming out of this past week in professional wrestling, New Japan did hold Dominion 612, their second biggest show of the year. The equivalent of SummerSlam is what I would call it. So I do have some matches to go over and some things to discuss coming out of that. And then we are going to talk about everything that happened in AEW over the past week, both on Rampage and Dynamite, where I would say the build to Forbidden Door really began in earnest. So let's start with New Japan Dominion 612. Chris is going to sit this out. He did not get an opportunity to see these matches. I'm only going to go over four matches, three that have direct impact uh, with AEW in one way or another, and one that I just kind of want to talk about because it was something really unique that I saw on that special show. Uh, Don't forget, if if you are someone who you're really not into the New Japan stuff, we will have timestamps throughout this episode. Of course, I I didn't say that already about the Vince McMahon investigation part. I figured everyone would want to listen to that. But if you do want to just skip ahead to AEW, there will be a timestamp in the episode description and you will be able to do just that. But I do not plan on spending that much time on this. So let's start with the main event of Dominion. The IWGP World Heavyweight Championship was on the line. Kazuchika Okada, and I say his name that way because that's how they said it on broadcast. I've always called him Kazuchika, but that's how they said it on broadcast. Uh, defending his title against Jay White. They spent a lot of time at ringside with White eventually suplexing Okada into the barricade and hitting the Blade Buster for a near fall. Then he put Okada over the top rope with a Saito suplex in a really nasty spot. Okada escaped a sleeper suplex for a shotgun dropkick. White then locked him into the inverted figure four leg lock and hit a Texas Cloverleaf with Okada nearly passing out. Okada no-sold chops and hit a dropkick. So White shoved Okada into red shoes to create a distraction that allowed Gato to throw a chair in the ring. By the time he noticed, Okada slid it out of the ring. Then he ran White into Gato and locked in the money clip. Gato distracted uh, red shoes, giving White an opening for a low blow. Okada went on a big run after that, but got caught with a sleeper suplex and a regalplex for a 2.9 plus another blade runner. There were numerous counters before Okada hit the tombstone and a spinning rainmaker. There were more counters before a dropkick and a landslide from Okada. White then shockingly countered the Rainmaker directly into Blade Runner out of nowhere for the 1-2-3 to become the new IWGP World Heavyweight Champion. White taunted Okada after the bell, even putting an ice pack behind his neck. Bullet Club came out, they all drank beers, and White got a bunch of cheers during his post-match promo. This was already a great match. I loved it as I was watching it, but the finishing sequence coming out of nowhere like that popped me big time. I went 4.5 stars and an A. Not the best match I've seen between these two. I saw that G1 Supercard match live at Madison Square Garden. The only time I've been at anything, I should note, at Madison Square Garden. Okada won the title. That was better. That was an A-plus match. This is an A match. But it was a great main event to what was an okay show, Dominion, uh, with a not that surprising title change. It did feel like a lot of people expected White to win the title here. We also had an IWGP US Heavyweight Championship match, Sonata against Will Ospreay. This was a vacant title that was dropped by Juice Robinson, who was unable to compete at Dominion due to appendicitis. In fact, Juice actually refused to return the title. I think it was in kayfabe. So there was no physical belt available to actually be rewarded at the end of the match. Uh, Awarded, not rewarded. Ospreay hit a great corkscrew uh, outside midway through, then later hit the Oz cutter for a false finish. He came back with Hidden Blade for a near fall. Sonata escaped Stormbreaker into an O'Connor roll uh, with a bridge for a near fall. Osprey had another hidden blade plus Stormbreaker and got the win. It was a damn good match. And look, making Osprey the US champion, it's a great move given he can now feud with Juice when he returns. It's interesting that New Japan had him beat Sonata given 
Sonata broke his orbital bone earlier this year when Osprey was fighting him. Uh, and this could have been a revenge victory that kind of restarted Sonata's title reign that he had back then. Now, this title has not been held by someone longer than three months since John Moxley owned it during the pandemic. So hopefully this is going to be the start of something significant for it. As far as the match, I went four stars and A- minus overall. This is the unique match that really has nothing to do with AEW, but there's a King of Pro Wrestling title now in New Japan. Shingo Takagi is the champion. He defended against Tai Chi. And I decided to discuss this match because of its incredibly inventive rules. Basically, it was a 10-minute unlimited pinfall scramble with each count, whether it was one, two, three, or even more, adding up to a grand total of points. So Taichi trailed 7-2. He fought his way back to 7-6 with three minutes left. Shingo hit a side pinning combination for a three count to go up 10-6. He had another point. Then Taichi started kicking out at zero. Taichi caught Shingo in a leg-wrapped pinning combination to get a three and added another one, but he ultimately fell 11-10 at the buzzer with Shingo retaining the title. I loved this match. I just did. It would be great, I thought, if a company like WWE incorporated something like this into its TV programs because it's an easy way for people to fight almost like in an interim capacity without anyone taking a clean pinfall or submission loss. You can say, oh yeah, sure, they got more points than me, but in a one-on-one match under regular rules, I can still beat them. Then you can build up to that definite decision. But you know that's probably never going to happen. I doubt that this rule ever comes to AEW or WWE. I thought the format was great. The match was well wrestled between two really talented dudes. Was it exceptional? No, but I was totally entertained by it. I went 3.75 stars and a B plus. And then lastly here, we had Hiroshi Tanahashi against Hiroki Goto. This was the AEW Interim World Championship semifinal. And this was very much a strong style match. Goto hit the Yushigoroshi, but Tanahashi countered a second one into a sling blade. Goto trapped Tana for a 2.99 false finish. So he hit another sling blade for a near fall. Tanahashi then nailed high fly flow twice for the one, two, three to win the match. As I've said before, it was absurd that a New Japan match was held for a competitor to advance into an AEW interim world title match, especially when neither of those people have ever competed in AEW. And given CM Punk versus Tanahashi was already announced, the winner of this was obvious just like the winner of John Moxley versus Tanahashi is blatantly obvious. It makes the entire extended process of crowning an interim champion worthless. The match was fine, but it was nothing spectacular. I went 3.25 stars in a B, which for a Tanahashi Goto match was a pretty big disappointment, I gotta say. So I will bring Vintage back in. Vintage Silver King, we're gonna be talking AEW at this point. We're gonna go over everything that happened across Dynamite, and Rampage. And I do have a couple of your DM slides as well to address uh, before this show is out. So let's start the way Dynamite started. Chris Jericho versus Ortiz, hair versus hair. Jericho hit a lion salt immediately at the bell, trying for a fast win. Then he had a suplex off the ring apron in a good spot. Ortiz later came back with a draping cutter and a DDT for a near fall. Ortiz missed a springboard tornado and ate a codebreaker for a 2.9 false finish. Jericho countered a hurricanrana into walls of Jericho but Ortiz reached the ropes and the faction started brawling outside. This distraction let Eddie Kingston run in for a spinning back fist and a 2.99 false finish that got a massive pop from the crowd. There was another distraction that led to Fuego del Sol running in with a bat. He popped Ortiz in the head 
and Jericho covered him for the one, two, three to win the match. Jericho's celebration music turned off very quickly. Uh, Kingston was incensed in the ring and Fuego removed his mask only to reveal himself as, you guessed it, Sammy Guevara. Ortiz grabbed the scissors and buzzer away from the barber and began cutting his own hair in defiance as he repeatedly screamed blood and guts, indicating he is now motivated even more for their match upcoming in a couple of weeks. This was a perfect Attitude Era booking in every way. First of all, the match was really good at 3.75 yes. stars and B+. And I only downgraded it from an A, A- minus area because of the Schmaz finish. The factions brawling, that was to be expected. We hate it because uh, AEW does it all the time. But in this sense, it made complete sense. And Jericho winning probably swerved a lot of people, though it is what I expected here. What I did not expect was Fuego. However, the second I saw him, I knew it was Sammy, and hopefully you all did too. Still, the reveal was perfect. On top of the moment itself, the booking of putting Sammy back with Jericho is extremely smart because he has completely floundered and failed on his own. And it's not really his fault. It's the way AEW has booked him. Hopefully, with Sammy back in Jericho Appreciation Society, Ty Conti there, she's another former WWE wrestler. So she fits the group narrative as well. This all works out. I think the group needed them from a star power standpoint. And Sammy definitely needed to be back there. So it's going to rehabilitate his character. It's going to help Jericho. It's going to help the JAS. The match was good. The reveal was done well. This was an A-plus opening segment to Dynamite. Maybe one of my favorite openings to any AEW show ever. This is a rare spot, I think, where you loved something in AEW more than I did. I, I loved all of it until the hair cutting. Because that was ultimately what this was supposed to be about. That was the whole stipulation. Someone's going to lose their hair. What is the point of doing a hair versus hair match if you're not even going to get the heat of cutting off somebody else's hair? Like, well, he, why he, took it, we... he took it into his own hands. It's like when someone, no, but, but, it's like when right, someone but, makes fun of themselves for having a, like a disability. Yeah, but, but that, that doesn't get me. But and, and commentary kept emphasizing, hey, Ortiz is a man of his word because right. he's doing it. And whatever. Like, that's fine. But like, like, just imagine how it would have been if Sammy and Jericho, you know, held him down while the rest of the JS kept people aside at ring and they shaved mm -hmm. Ortiz's head off. Like it would have been, there would have been a lot more heat out of it. That, that's the thing with the sure Jericho Appreciation Society is that it doesn't have, it doesn't have heel, heel heat. It's just kind of, it's half jokey, half not. And so I just loved everything else. I just didn't get anything more out of him cutting his own hair. It was like, oh, okay. But like, it, it was that that was the only thing I would change. I think it just would have been a, a ton bit better if Jericho was this and then Ortiz is pissed off even more and he really wants to get to him. So, look, it, it was overall, I really liked it. Everything was good. I just didn't love that ending. Uh, and as someone who will be going to Blood and Guts in Detroit, I'm very much looking forward to the match. I think you make a very fair point, but it also really speaks to AEW as a whole. There's very few people in AEW that are like true heels. There was there was one and he well, well he was he was feuding with Wardlow but then of course he goes to Long Island he gets a ton of cheers and then he comes back and he cuts that promo and he gets a ton of cheers so even yeah. MJF people boo him because they know they're supposed to but they don't want to boo him and yeah but, that, but you, go ahead you should still want to get the boos that's why that's you should what want makes MJF to so good you should want to but that's not what AEW does it's really not and even Jer Jer Jericho actually had a comment in a TSN article I read yesterday where he compared 
it to go into a football game where there's somebody you want to win, somebody you want to lose. There's not necessarily a heel and a face in a sporting event, which I, I get. But I just felt well, in depends terms of you, the story. Depends where you go in college football. Sure. Is, but yeah. But <laughs> yeah. in terms of the story, I just felt like it doesn't the story doesn't have a ton of juice. And I felt like that would have really been something that's something you show on the video package. That's something you you talk about the next week. Hey, Ortiz, I got your hair. Look at this. I'm doing stuff with it. Like I just it felt like a missed opportunity more than anything. Yeah. I mean, I think they missed that opportunity for the Sammy reveal. Now, they could have done that in the ring while they were shaving the head and it probably would have been even better. But again, I'm I'm not disagreeing with you at all. I I agree with you that it could have gotten a lot more heat. I'm just pointing out in general that it's not really something that AEW does that frequently because the fans, some fans cheer for everybody. Right. And the heels, faces, whatever. It's a smart crowd. It's not a WWE crowd. If this was WWE, that would be a huge um, criticism on my part. Like I, I would, I would go after them for it. But because it is AEW and everyone is both cheered and booed, it's kind of not that big of an issue for me. The other point you made, though, is a good one. Jericho Appreciation Society, they're not really heels, even though they're supposed to be. They're just like annoying assholes. They're not people you hate. You just don't really want them on your TV. Yeah. And that's why I think they could have used it. Like they just they haven't really they haven't really had anything to kind of latch on to. And that could have been something. Wrapping up this portion of the storyline on Rampage, Eddie Kingston fought Jake Hager midway through. There was a Hager bomb for a near fall. Then he got an ankle lock. Kingston reached the ropes. Kingston came back by picking Hager off the ropes for a power bomb, then hitting two spinning back fists for the win. This match reminded me that Hager should never do anything except like 10-man matches. I've become a huge Kingston fan in and out of the ring over the last couple of years, but this was probably my least favorite match of his among those that I've seen. I, I, it was Rampage. It was fine to be on the show. Didn't care for it. Yeah, it's kind of how Rampage is most times. It was kind of an awkward matchup between the two. So it was whatever. So now there's there's more to talk about with this. Um, but it's it comes at the end of another topic. So let's get into that. On Dynamite, John Moxley and Hiroshi Tanahashi had a face-to-face scheduled in the ring. These are the two guys competing for the AEW Interim World Championship. So at the start of Dynamite, the first thing I want to note, AEW assumed that we already knew Tanahashi won the Dominion match. And I thought that was extremely poor because, yes, I did know. I, I did. The Silver King did. Vintage may have. And certainly IWC fans did. But not everyone who watches their show automatically knows these things. And it pisses me off that they treat everyone like they're supposed to. But... After that, there was a video package about Moxley taunting Tanahashi about it going on for years. That was good. And it did help explain their relationship. And it actively told you that this guy is the one in the match. So they literally stood face to face in the ring. Fans chanted, holy shit. And this was about Mox kind of putting over Tanahashi for the crowd, saying that this this fight, this match, it's about more than the interim title because Tanahashi is the ace of professional wrestling. Fans chanted Tana's name. Mox then said Tana may be a legend, but Mox is the straight up best professional wrestler on the planet. And there's more on the line for him than the AEW interim title, but his legacy. Then he promised Tanahashi would call him ace when all is said and done. So I'll pause here, Chris, and allow you to address kind of what I said. But I find it interesting that they've already done a really, really poor job with this 
interim scramble or whatever you want to call it for the title. But then you have Mox, and I know he was putting over Tanahashi, and I, I was pleased with the way he put over Tanahashi. But he's basically saying, this match, I don't even care about the interim title. I care about fighting and beating you. But you should care about, why does no one care? Why does Hangman Page not care about the interim title? Why does Wardlow not care about the interim title? And why does John Moxley, who is one of the two people competing for it, the number one contender who got a bye through the first part of the scramble, why does he not really care about it either? I think, I'm guessing because they know it's the interim title. I, I, I don't know. This segment got me really excited for the match. Like, like as someone who, I've, I've been to an NJPW show in Dallas. I generally know who the people are. I don't follow it much closer than that. This did a great job of making Tanahashi look and feel like a big deal. And AEW sometimes messes that up. They, they don't make somebody feel like as big a deal as they should. But they, for a lot of people who watch AEW and maybe don't know who he is or just kind of aren't familiar with him, he was presented like an absolute star. Yes. And so they, abs- yes. they absolutely nailed that. So it got me excited for the match. It didn't get me excited for there being an interim champion, like you said. And I, I think that's kind of that's just kind of the nature of the weird structure of, of the whole thing. And so the, the interim title idea has been a letdown from the ever since the announcement. It just it, it kind of hasn't been clear. It's been weird. You do the battle royal and you keep all the big stars out of it. It just hasn't felt like a big deal. And so it plus the idea of a, a non AW person being in the championship match is weird. And so there's just a lot of just so many moving parts with this whole thing. It's, it's kind of hard to fully get around, but I did overall like this part of the me segment and, and, and think it definitely got me excited even more for Moxley and Tanashi. Yeah. Because the goal is to sell the pay-per-view, right? And you want people yes. to watch this match and think it's going to be a really good match. And Moxley accomplished that. And I, and I yes. did appreciate that again, separate from the other stuff that I mentioned. Now, before Tanahashi could respond, Jericho's music hit. He comes out with Sammy and Ty. Jericho said Mox was in his spot. And the last time he saw Tanahashi, he laid him out in the Tokyo Dome. So I was thinking, are they about to make this a triple threat? Like, what are they, what are they doing here? Tanahashi told Jericho to shut up. Those are the only words he said. So then JAS, Lance Archer, and Desperado from New Japan attacked. Jericho then announced that Sammy and Ty are the newest members of JAS and that Archer and Desperado are members of Suzuki Gun over in New Japan. That's a faction. And they're on loan to him from Minoru Suzuki. Then he announced that there's going to be a six-man tag team match at Forbidden Door between Jericho, Suzuki, and Sammy against Kingston, Wheeler Yuta, and Shota Umino, who is Moxley's young boy over in Japan. So Archer and Desperado didn't even factor in, yet they showed up here anyway. This was, I guess, on behalf of Suzuki was the point. But this was so incredibly overbooked and convoluted. Like, holy shit. I mean, this segment was about Moxley and Tanahashi, the main event of your huge co-branded pay-per-view. You throw Jericho in for no reason. Then you do a brawl that has nothing to do with Mox or Tanahashi other than being like, minorly tangentially related a little bit to Mox because of blood and guts with Kingston and Suzuki gun and Tanahashi. But fans don't know that shit. No one watching knows that. Why not do all of this bullshit backstage after the hair versus hair match when most of these people were already involved and brawling with each other? As I said, 
Moxley's promo to start this segment. It was a great way to sell the match. But everything that succeeded it kept tumbling and tumbling into a larger and larger pile of shit from there. Yeah, this I love that opening segment with Moxley and Tanahashi. And then it just devolved into an absolute complete mess. Is this the, the definition of clusterfuck? Like, is that I literally I literally in my I, I write in my notes. Mox Tanahashi was good. Then it became a clusterfuck. That's what go. I wrote in my notes. So, so yes, it. Um, yes. How a Moxley Tanahashi segment ends with an announcement of a six man tag involving none of those two people was weird. Seeing Lance Archer. But I guess he's on the NJPW side. Look, Excalibur did his best to explain it. Excalibur is often put in these situations where he has to explain something that probably would take about five minutes and he has to cram it into 30 seconds. And it's just, it's hard to follow all of it. We didn't need Jericho announcing that Sammy was in the Jericho Appreciation Society since we basically just saw that. Like we didn't, we didn't need the formal announcement after we saw it 20 minutes prior or whatever that was. So yeah, this, um, look, AEW in general, the show has been a mess since, Mm -hmm the last pay-per-view, even before that, because you're building to a show now where half the people aren't on your show and half the competitors aren't on your show regularly. So it's just, there's no way you can really tell these. There aren't stories to tell. There aren't stories to build. And the result is just guys just being crammed in there. And and like, it's not even like an invasion. It's just like little pieces of an invasion. So it's just, it's kind of a mess. And this was really, I think, the, the crux of that. That is one big pile of shit. I will get to Excalibur a little bit later in the show. I'm going to give him his just due because he deserves a lot of credit for the work he did on Wednesday. He's very good. Um, But yeah, this was just is an absolute mess. So let's stick with Dynamite. We had Hangman Adam Page who came out reminding everyone that he challenged Okada to a match for the IWGP World Heavyweight Championship last week. He admitted that he was a dumbass for not realizing Okada could lose that title. He said the sentiment hasn't changed and the challenge stands. Now, I thought when he said the challenge stands, he was saying his challenge to Okada stands. Yeah, me too. But Adam Cole interrupts once again. He praises Bullet Club member Jay White for winning the title, as we mentioned earlier. And he said that Paige is not the one who should be making challenges. It should be Cole. Cole said Okada won't even be there. And then he introduced White, who caught Hangman from behind with a Blade Runner. White said he's the catalyst and he wouldn't put his title on the line against someone he's beaten like Hangman. He also said he wouldn't defend against Cole either, which was a surprise to Cole. But what White didn't announce is who he is facing. (laughs) And then he stood over Hangman at the end, which makes me think this is all some convoluted way of getting a triple threat with Paige and Cole almost like teaming up to say that they both deserve a chance against White. I don't even know. It's going to end up being a great match if any two of these three of them fight. But it's not exactly one that I'm like dying to see. And not having Okada at Forbidden Door is a massive disappointment. It's like the equivalent of Roman Reigns missing Clash at the Castle or Crown Jewel or something like that. It just doesn't make sense unless he's injured. And apparently he is not injured. Yeah, that mostly my my takeaway from the segment was disappointment that we're not getting Okada in some form and that the big challenge Hangman made of week ago now no longer is the case i don't know if they didn't know i don't know if they didn't know what's going to happen or if things change i haven't followed the reporting closely maybe there's a reason for it but um this felt like 
oh crap, we promised something big last week and now we can't do that. So we got to figure something out. And we didn't even get a resolution to that. So my takeaway from the segment was just kind of confusion and disappointment overall. And not much more than that. There was something out there about like negotiations with Okada maybe not working out, but I don't know the timing of that. I believe that happened before last Dynamite, so they knew. That's why when he mentioned Okada, it was a surprise to people. I'm a little bit messy on that, but long and short of it is, this is messy, and and we don't exactly know what's going to happen. And by the way, this thing's in two weeks, Forbidden Door. Uh, So let's move on to the Tag Team Championship ladder match, which was supposed to be a triple threat, of course, but was now Jurassic Express against the Young Bucks. There was no mention of the Hardys, which was to be expected. Jungle Boy hit a double springboard Huracarana onto Nick. Matt hit three Northern Lights suplexes with the third into an angled ladder. Then Jungle Boy did Huracarana off the apron, planting Matt through a table. Immediately on the other side, Nick caught Jungle Boy for a powerbomb through a table and hit a Canadian Destroyer plus a 450 splash, putting Luchasaurus through a table outside. Okay, that's taking a, that's me taking a breath here. Uh, there was no solid <laughs> something, whatsoever. Something, something, them and the, something the people in the match did not do. Correct. They did not do it because there was no selling whatsoever in this match. Uh, four tables were stacked at ringside with two ladders side by side in the ring. Luchasaurus ate a double power bomb into a ladder and banged his head. Jungle Boy ate a poison rana that was dangerously close to the legs of a ladder. Matt did a flying elbow outside, putting Luchasaurus through a table that Luchasaurus literally put himself onto. He got knocked outside. He rolled his body from like out of the ring apron onto a table just for this spot. I thought that was a little strange. Nick's nose got busted open for real. There was a really dumb failed BTE trigger on a ladder. It was really sloppy. Then Luchasaurus got pushed off the ladder through the four tables outside, which was obviously the spot of the match. The Bucks hit the BTE trigger on Jungle Boy on the floor, and then they easily climbed the ladders to win the titles in 14 minutes. Christian Cage ran down after the bell to check on Luchasaurus. He then went to assist Jungle Boy out of the ring and instead hit him with kill switch in the expected heel turn. He followed with a concerto as per usual. Uh, Let's start with this. We all knew this was going to happen. And it was just a little bit underwhelming. When Edge does it, it's so impactful. And you believe that this guy has snapped and lost his mind. It's the facial expressions, the acting, frequently the hair, how crazed and manic he looks. With Christian, it was teased for so long that it's just like, okay, great. They finally did it. Am I wrong about that? I know people, some people out there do love Christian. They are the peeps. I get it. He has peeps out there. For me, Edge is far superior in almost every way, but particularly in this way when it comes to snapping and turning on someone and becoming a heel. Well, for, first off with, with the match, I, I enjoy the hell out of it. I, I, I thought the first hour of Dynamite was kind of a mess as we've gone through some of that stuff. I thought the second hour was much more crisp and enjoyable and straightforward and this was a this was a really fun match yeah they didn't sell but like kind of like what you said before about what to expect with AEW, that's just kind of what i expect with AEW. so I, I you go into it expecting that and this was a lot of fun i i, I really enjoyed it the the lucha shore spot through the four tables was great and the young bucks are i think the first two-time champions you know we needed a tag team uh, title change we got it that was good love all that great great stuff absolutely the christian part yeah, we did expect it. We we had been waiting for it. I agree that, you know, the way Edge sells it versus the way Christian sells it. I, I just I don't think Christian has really... I, I, I've never been that into Christian as a heel, essentially. Yeah, me either. <laughs> I, I, he, he's good as the, you know, the, the, the plucky number two to Edge when he's a heel or if he's the underdog face. That's kind of what his mm-hmm. 
bread and butter, I think, has been. So, yeah, we, we didn't, you know, we expected it. Hopefully we get an explanation either on Rampage or Dynamite next week. Maybe it's something like, I was with you guys because you were the champs, you know, but you'd lost them, so I don't want to be with you anymore. I, I don't know, but um, it's good to finally have these things advance because we didn't get that on the pay-per-view when we expected it and wanted it. So now they're finally doing it moving forward. So I, I still think it's overall just good all around, even if some parts weren't as great. But I, I really enjoyed this as a main event. Sure. I mean, I guess addressing the Christian part, um, to me, it's more like I told you to watch your back. I told you to listen to me. You didn't. And this is what you got. And now this is what you get from me. I also want to note that the concerto, I don't know if you saw it or if others saw it. And maybe I'm just like seeing things or, or thinking about the worst. It looked like it hit the top of his head. Jungle I thought that too. And, and he didn't move. Now, you know, he was selling, I'm sure. Uh, but I, I wouldn't be surprised if there was a little bit of something there. Hopefully not. Hopefully he's totally fine, but they've written him off anyway for a period of time. So, you know, I don't expect what, to see them anytime soon. Yeah. And, and one thing about, I guess, he, I said this before um, when AJ and Edge happened, and it's even more so now, but like we, there is an epidemic of concertos right now, just in pro wrestling. They're hmm. happening once a month. It's supposed to be a devastating move. It happened to Adam Cole when Jungle Boy or somebody yes, did it. He, he was came back, back the like next a week. week. He was like yeah. back a week later. You know, he may have even been back. He he may have even been back on Rampage for all I remember. It, it, that's, it was definitely I, no more than a week though. But like, yeah. it's supposed to be a devastating move and it needs to be treated <coughs> as such. But also, it's kind of mind-blowing that we don't do headshots with chairs anymore. But yet we stack, we technically still do the safer, yet kayfabe more devastating concerto. That's just kind of interesting to kind of square that. Well, yeah, we're not I mean, doing headshots. We're not doing headshots, but we're very much implying headshots. Well, they still. Well, first room. of all, WWE still does headshots just with two hands up. Uh, AEW yeah, does it. Kind of. AEW does it with a gimmick chair. Now it failed one time. They recently did it. Was it with MJF? I think I don't remember who. It yeah, was. yeah. Uh, 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 whoever was with uh, Sean Spears at MJF in the cage match. Oh yeah, that's what it was. Uh, and he took it straight to the dome, right? So, so they exist, but you know, I don't mind a concerto as long as it's sold. So what they did with Adam Cole was absolutely ridiculous with edge. I'm expecting him to be out, you know, four to six weeks coming back right before SummerSlam for a challenge. So I'm totally fine with it in this, in, in the WWE case, but here, we'll see. Let's see how long Jungle Boy and Luchasaurus are out. If they're back in two weeks, it's ridiculous. If they're out for a couple of months, which I do think is possible, then all of a sudden that's going to make a lot of sense and I'll be totally fine with it. As far as the match, I didn't even get a chance to talk about that. Look, uh, it was 25 minutes of spots shoved into near nearly half the time. Uh, it's easy to do that, as I said, when no one other than Luchasaurus, to give him credit, sells. Uh, you can't doubt the effort. You can't doubt the danger of the spots here. So for that alone, I'm giving the match four stars and an A minus. It was super entertaining, but there was no crescendo. There was no anticipation that built. It was just spot after spot after spot. And when you do something like that, that's as far as you're going to get with me, unless it is absolutely spectacular, like the Young Bucks and uh, Lucha Bros has been in the past. As far as the title change goes, I thought it was expected. I'm 99.9% .9 sure it was going to be the Hardys winning the titles in that spot. And that's obviously a switch going from faces to heels. I don't think it's going to be that difficult for AEW to book around, just given they have so many tag teams. But this does, Chris, lend more credence to what you and I both said previously. The titles should have been changed at double or nothing, either with Ricky Starks and Powerhouse Hobbs or Keith Lee and Swerve. Either of them winning 
would have been better than this. But in this situation, there's no criticism that you're going to get from me for the Bucks winning the titles again. Uh, they weren't supposed to. AEW had to change the titles. They had to do the Christian turn that I'm sure they wanted to do after the titles changed. Could they have inserted another team into the match? Maybe, but I don't care that they're EVPs. They're great wrestlers. They're a great tag team and they're totally fine champions. Yeah, I, I think that's it, it needed something to happen. The belts needed to be back on the heels, I think, more than anything, because there's just more natural stories when you do that. Uh, I, I really like the Young Bucks. You know, it, it's good. It's, it's definitely, a, it's a good step forward, a needed step forward for uh, that division. Really needed a fresh change. And hopefully now we move toward that. Their title reign just did not work as far as I'm concerned. Jurassic Express. Uh, so on Dynamite, yeah. we had Wardlow against the 20 plaintiffs. Uh, this followed, I need to note this, this followed what I already graded in the A plus hair versus hair segment that opened the show. And this one was the exact opposite. If there was such a thing as an F minus, this would be an F minus. To me, it was a complete and utter disaster. There was no rhyme or reason to what happened. Some people were declared eliminated because they get bounced off the apron. The vast majority were allowed to be pinned by being stacked on others without their shoulders on the mat. When like Roman Reigns, people compared it to that. When Roman Reigns smashed and stacked Daniel Bryan and Edge, all four of their shoulders were down. These people were just thrown on top of other people and those counted as pinfalls, which didn't make any sense. The match was completely nonsensical and it was just as bad as I suggested it was going to be last week. It actually hurt me to watch it. And then after the match, Dan Lambert, like as if they they had to pile more shit onto something that I already was bound to hate. Dan Lambert is in a skybox. He says, Wardlow better watch his back because when he goes after one member of American Top Team, he goes after all of them. Then Tyron Woodley, a legitimate big UFC name, and Matt Hughes, who used to be one, uh, two former champions, they left the crowd and got into the ring. Wardlow says to them, since you're from St. Louis, you're better than Lambert and you shouldn't fight me. So these two badass guys who have a career of being aligned with Dan Lambert, they just shrug and go, okay, we're not going to fight you. They threw Mark Sterling to him. Wardlow power bombs Mark Sterling. And then they raise Wardlow's arms. The creative surrounding Wardlow coming out of double or nothing has been indeed, I use the term on Tuesday, booking malpractice. Now, I am sure, no doubt in my mind, he's going to win the TNT title off Scorpio Sky in short order, and everyone will probably brush away this garbage. But that's what it was. Garbage. There was nothing redeemable about the entire segment. I don't understand why Lambert is still on my effing television. I don't understand why Wardlow cannot roll through mid-carters on AEW's massive roster. They have hundreds of people on this roster. Let him beat some real wrestlers here. If they weren't ready to push him to the moon, they should not have booked him the way they did against MJF. They needed to be prepared for this situation. So no, this was not an A+. It was the exact opposite. In fact, zero point zero. It's a zero. Again, that, that first hour of the show was a bit messy, and this was the, the peak of that. I, I think you said it, and I want to make sure I saw with my eyes correctly the first couple of people eliminated from the match was because they were thrown over the top rope, right? They weren't. They were bounced off the ring apron. Yeah, because because I had seen earlier in the day, Tony Khan, I think, was on Busted Open Radio and said that he has to pin all twenty people. So, so I, immediate, 
I so think, I don't know if they I don't know if the ring announcer messed that up or, or what. But that I think was what really may have happened start. is that the ring announcer messed it up and those people got counted as pinfalls later. But even without the apron spot, the fact that you could just throw a person on top of well, another right. person and that, that's, that's a pinfall, the next, it's a joke. That's the next part I was going to yeah. say. Was, was first, first they say you got to do the pinfall and then you're throwing people over the ropes. I'm like, oh wait, did the rules change and I didn't realize that or was it a botch? And then he pins a couple, the, the spot where he was, I think he tapped somebody out and put his foot on somebody to, to pin. That was a good spot. Like, but, but the rest of it was a mess. You've got people on their stomachs on top of people like this is Cameron asking people to count it. And it was, you're just like, it, it became pretty, it became evident pretty quickly that this was not going to be a segment that was savable. And the crowd largely checked out of it at that point. And then look, you get the, the, the local UFC guys to, to pop the crowd, which I get, but like, again, it didn't make any sense whatsoever. And it was just really, really awkward. And that, yeah, that was, that was a mess. All right. I don't want to talk about it anymore. Uh, staying with American top team on dynamite. We had Ethan page against Miro. This was for the, uh, what is it? All Atlantic championship qualifier on rampage page again, got way too angry in a promo saying Miro relies on and blames God for his life, but page only relies on himself. Then he promised to beat Miro and win his first gold in AEW. Of course, no one watching actually believed that might happen. I did maybe say this was on Rampage. It was actually on Dynamite. So I'm sorry if I messed that up. Uh, Miro dominated, punched Lambert off the apron, hit a thrust kick on Page and won with game over. There was nothing to it. It was an obvious winner. I don't have anything else to say. Yeah, no, nothing more than that. Look, it was nice to see Ethan Page wrestle again. I honestly can't remember the last time I saw him in a singles match, at least from what I've watched. So I think he's really talented. I think he... And Scorpio Sky need to get away from Dan Lambert, as we've said a million times. But other than that, good to see Miro back. Good to see Miro get a win. And um, yeah, not much more than that. On Rampage, we had Trent Beretta and FTR against Will Osprey and Aussie Open. This was quite chaotic. Dax Harwood uh, had a great hot tag run with three German suplexes, then a fourth with a jackknife cover by Cash Wheeler for a near fall. Aussie Open then combined for an assisted toss cutter with Osprey hitting a springboard 450 for a broken fall. Then Osprey hit the Oz cutter only for Wheeler to kick out, which really seemed unnecessary. Osprey took down FTR outside with a flinging crossbody before Trent hit strong zero back inside the ring for the win. Definitely a fun match. It kind of floored me that AEW had one of the best wrestlers in the world make his in-ring debut for the company in a six-man tag team match at 10.45 p.m. Eastern on a Friday night. It also didn't feel particularly important in any way. It was just wrestling for wrestling's sake. I don't know if you have anything on this. If you don't, we can move on to Dynamite. I, I enjoyed it. Like, like again, a rampage, throw a bunch of people together to do a fun six man, do some twirly stuff. You know, that, 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 that's, I think that's generally what you want to expect out of rampage at that point. So overall, I thought it was, it was, it was good for that. Maybe I just need to think of rampage more as like WWE superstars back in the day and less like yeah. thunder, you know, unless, <laughs> unless it's a live one. If it's a live rampage, they try to do something better, but if it's not, yeah, that's pretty much what it is. that's, that's a fair thought. All right, so moving over to Dynamite, continuing the story, we had Dax Harwood against Will Ospreay. Ospreay got the hot run early until Harwood hit five straight Germans, plus another awesome toss German. Dax made a mistake going for a flying headbutt. Ospreay took advantage with a 450. There was a great near fall sequence before Ospreay hit a flinging crossbody outside and a flying forearm inside, all for a false finish. Ospreay flipped out of Harwood's uh, slingshot, Liger Bomb. Dax blocked the Oz cutter and then hit the Liger Bomb for another near fall. Osprey hit a Liger bomb of his own for a near fall, followed by the Oz cutter for a false finish. And then he finally hit the hidden blade for the one, two, three. This match absolutely banged. Um, 
I think it was probably one of my top 10 TV matches of the year. And the mm-hmm. moment immediately got soiled by a post-match brawl between the two sides. It set up the return of Orange Cassidy, to be fair, who strolled into the ring for a face-off with Osprey, which is setting up a forbidden door match. We will talk about that later. Anyway, back to the fucking match that got overshadowed by the moment. It was outstanding. Everything worked. I didn't put it in A-plus range, but you did not leave wanting anything more. It was better than Osprey Sonata that I discussed earlier at Dominion. The finishing sequence was great, and Osprey was obviously the right winner. I went 4.25 stars and an A only because I had that Jay White Okada match at 4.5, and this was not better than that. So this may be one of those matches that's a victim of grading within the week in which it's graded as opposed to the, the larger scheme of things, but it was an A match either way. I loved it. This was such a fun clash of styles. Like, you know, we've seen Osprey Ricochet. We've seen him do all the flippy shit type of matches, but putting that up against Dax Harwood, no flips, you know, type of stuff was just a really fun dynamic. And the match played out that way. This was awesome stuff. Dax continues to be honestly one of the wrestlers of the year. I think you, you put him in that conversation right? with the year he's having both in the tag run and as a singles wrestler. It is very cool that AEW is letting him shine in these spots like that. And he's clearly become a trusted, no pun intended, top guy for stuff like that. So his future continues to look bright. This match rocked. It was awesome. Um, definitely very cool and just great stuff all around. Then the, you got the mess at the end, and it was kind of how it always works with the AW. And then eventually Orange Cassidy comes out, crowds into it. I was pretty into it. I just think like Orange, Orange Cassidy versus <coughs> Orange Cassidy versus Will Ospreay. Am I into it? Am I going to enjoy it? Yes. I just feel like for a show of this magnitude, it doesn't feel big enough. Agreed. Like the the Orange Cassidy Pac match, which I'm sure it'll get compared to, was great. And we love that. But that was also at the early stages of Orange Cassidy. You know, it was still kind of a new thing to a lot of people. I just think when you have Will Ospreay to not have a Will Ospreay versus Phoenix or Will Ospreay versus Pac or something like that, I'm I'm kind of surprised this is the one they're going with. I completely agree with that. Uh, on Dynamite, uh, we had Britt Baker against Tony Storm on Rampage. Baker was angry. Storm touched the AEW women's title that Baker doesn't even hold, and she doesn't want her skipping the line. She said the title is missing her more than she's missing it. So they basically put together, in my opinion, a convoluted reason for a rematch just so Storm can get a 50-50 win. At least that was my perspective going into the match. Storm on Dynamite said Baker may be smart, but she doesn't have the skill set to beat her because she's going to be champion and the future of the division. Thunder Rosa ran down early in the match to fight Jamie Hayter to the back. Storm hit Tornado DDTs inside and outside consecutively. Then she hit a hip attack that hit Baker so hard, it nearly decapitated her. So Baker holds onto the bottom rope twice as Storm keeps going after her. The referee stopped action as Baker collapsed in the ring, but Baker was playing possum. She got an inside ger- uh, inside German cradle, I almost called it, an inside cradle and a swinging neckbreaker for near falls. Storm came back with a German suplex and Storm Zero and got the win. Now, the wrestling we got to see in this match, it was good, but I don't know if it was just me, Chris. It felt like exactly half or maybe even more than half of the wrestling happened during the commercial break. We either got top tier selling for Baker or a mix of reality and kayfabe after that hip attack, which 
did legitimately look to me like she got whiplash or something like that. Yeah. Uh, it was a good match. It was surprisingly short. And they also announced Storm versus Thunder Rosa for Forbidden Door. We will talk about that a little bit later. Yeah, it, it got us to where we needed to be, which was Tony Storm back in the title picture. And that was the point. Hey, look, we 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 complain about Britt Baker winning too much, winning at the pay-per-views when she shouldn't necessarily probably do that kind of like the tag team thing it's like all right now they're moving to the spot where we wanted them to move they're just doing it a few weeks later for some reason the match was the match was good um you know enjoyed it aw they just you know the commercial stuff we say this all the time hey, it was a great match but most of it was in commercial we, honestly we say the same with smackdown too but it's like aw just it never stops like like if you go to a show it's just match and we're going or we're going and there's commercials sometimes there's not but there's no like pause to give everybody a commercial very often so um it kind of ends up the result like that overall this is definitely a good enjoyed it for what it was good to see tony storm get the win that she needed and now moving up to a spot where she needed to be she does need to be there i agree with that but no surprise by the way that um rosa didn't wrestle or speak on the show another episode where rosa just runs in really quick and and runs out on Rampage, Chris Statlander fought Red Velvet. There was a really nice sequence with Stat hitting a roll-through German suplex and a fisherman-style blue thunderbomb for a near fall. Velvet hit a strange spinning cutter off the middle rope, plus just dessert for a false finish. Stat eventually flipped the Velvet onto her chest for Friday Night Fever and the win. Of course, Kiara Hogan attacked immediately after the bell, and Jade Cargill hit a pump kick outside to knock Stat out cold. Anna Jay made the save, only to get outnumbered. Then Athena got stopped from attacking by agents and officials, I have no idea why they stopped her from attacking when everyone else is allowed to attack. That is completely nonsensical. Uh, look, it seems like AEW is stretching out a Jade Stat match, a Jade Athena match. I, I, I expect that they will change the title with one of those two. But I'm also not really going to get my hopes up. It seems like we have a six-woman match and a regular tag match that could both take place before the title gets on the line. As far as this match, I saw a lot of praise for it. And I do agree it was good. It was one of the better AEW women's matches. But I also didn't think it was anything that was like worth being praised the way it was. I went 3.25 stars in a B, which is good, but not spectacular. I think maybe it was better than expectations, which is which is part of it. Maybe. And I think that's also uh, a, a statement about the talent that Chris Statlander has. And, and the crowd is really behind her right now. And frankly, yeah, I she's probably the person who should take the title off of Jade Cargill at, at this point. But also I, I, you know, I don't really know what the the plan in the future is with Jade. She's got the undefeated streak. She's got all these things going. Maybe they stretch that out. There's obviously a lot of multi-woman tag matches you can do here. Um, so yeah, I, I enjoyed it. And I, I think maybe it's because it, it, it uh, exceeded my expectations. On Rampage, Jay Lethal and Satnam Singh fought Davey Vega and Matt Fitchett, I think is how you say his name. Uh, Singh had absolutely no idea how to sell or remote. Like just, just stood there, kind of strutted around. Lethal hit a double lethal injection for the win. After the bell, the heels attacked uh, and Singh hit a spinning razor's edge. That was impressive, but it also looked super dangerous. Like you're throwing a guy off your shoulders, spinning at that speed. You could easily land on his neck. Uh, this was terrible. It belonged on dark, not on television. Dark at zero. That's it. That's all I got. Yeah, I don't care anything about the Jay Lethal, Satnam Singh stuff. All this Ring of Honor stuff happening on AEW continues to be just kind of weird. And I don't think TV is the spot for it. You know, outside of FTR and Samoa Joe, who's 
only tangently there. I think most of the Ring of Honor stuff keep it on dark and dark elevation. Agreed. And lastly, on Dynamite, Stokely Hathaway announced Jade Cargill was going to do an open challenge for the TBS Championship on Rampage. I should have talked about this earlier. And he said he would be on commentary getting a double paycheck. Willow Nightingale, who I don't believe is even signed to AEW, stepped up and accepted the challenge. Stokely said, okay. It was a short, funny spot, but that was really it. I thought this was actually a really good promo from Willow Nightingale. I was kind of taken aback. It was good. Oh, this is, I agree. It was, I was like, oh, this is actually, this person can, can talk and do some things. And I'm kind of interested. Now, obviously, we know what the win's going to be, but never heard of an open challenge happening like that. So that was different. Um, so, yeah, you know, we'll see what it was. But for a short little segment like that on TV, I, uh, I enjoyed it. All right. So that is the breakdown of AEW Dynamite and Rampage. But as I said, we did have a little bit more to talk about because I got a couple DMs here. And I also wanted to go over this card for Forbidden Door. Now, Chris, unless things change, Forbidden Door right now has no Kenny Omega injured. No Kazuchika Okada, don't know what is going on with him. No Tetsuya Naito, no Shingo Takagi, no Brian Danielson, injured but expected to recover, expected to be on the show. And as of right now, no Tomohiro Ishii. Um, we have an obvious main event winner in John Moxley against Hiroshi Tanahashi. We have a strange new championship on the card that no one really cares about, even though I do expect the match to be good. So far, we have Pac. And Miro, who have qualified, we expect Malachi Black to qualify. And I'm not sure who's going to be the New Japan person. It might be Ishii. We'll see. We have an AEW Women's Championship match between Thunder Rosa and Tony Storm. And maybe we get a title change there. But I also find it quite ridiculous that they're allowing an all AEW women's match because New Japan doesn't have a, a women's division. But they couldn't do an all AEW men's match for their vacant world championship. That is yeah. strange to me as well. And then we have the thrown together Jericho Suzuki Sammy against Kingston Yuta Umino match, which is fine. Very typical of New Japan cards. They have a lot of mixed tag team, ma- not mixed tag team matches, multi-person tag team matches, six, eight, 10. I think I've even seen a 12 uh, for New Japan just to get a lot of people on the undercard of the show. So not against necessarily doing that. Although it is interesting that you're having Jericho, someone who's actually crossed over to New Japan, in one of these matches, as opposed to him being in a featured match against an individual of prominence that would be attractive to the New Japan audience. So just looking at this card, I gotta say, like, I think Mox and Tanahashi is going to be a good wrestling match. I think Osprey and Orange Cassidy, which I did not mention, by the way, for the IWGP United States Championship, I think that's going to be a good wrestling match. Thunder Rosa against Tony Storm, I think it's going to be a good wrestling match. The All-Atlantic Championship match was probably going to be a good championship match. But am I excited about any of these? No, I am legitimately not excited at all about Forbidden Door. You know what this feels like, honestly? It, it feels like the first WWF WCW invasion show, which didn't have Goldberg, didn't have Sting, didn't have Hogan, didn't have Ric Flair, didn't have The Rock, didn't have Triple H. Um, and it, re- it resulted in just, you know, that was part of the reason the invasion did or didn't you know didn't work depending on kind of how your perspective was it, it was this is lacking a lot of the star power that we had hoped when it was first announced some of that unforeseen like cm punk and daniel bryan and, and brian anderson and some other people but to do a AEW new japan show and kind of be missing a lot of those big names not having as many dream matchups as we wanted that was the whole appeal of the show it was like 
we're going to get dream matches. I think they even said that in the announcement. I think Tony Khan or Adam Cole might have said that. So it has been <coughs> it has been a bit of a disappointment uh, build to it. On top of much of the shows not making much sense because uh, how do you build to that kind of show when you don't have all these people? You also have Blood and Guts happening the very next show. The Dynamite after Forbidden Door is blood and guts. And so you've got the whole Jericho Appreciation Society doing that. So you're building to two different shows at the same time, and it just kind of makes everything a, a bit awkward. But but overall, look, it, there's going to be a lot of good matches on it. We're going to watch it, you know, in, in that type of deal. But I do think it is, it is not reaching the level we had hoped when the announcement was first made. I do agree with that. I also have two DM slides here that are both very similar but I'm going to read both of them and it's the final topic we can cover. Greg Heminger at Heminger Greg, he wrote, this show just feels bloated and directionless. This forbidden door card has disrupted the natural flow of AEW television in the same way the Saudi shows used to hurt WWE storylines. They're starting to lose me. And then Norp at Norp 1995-1395 wrote, this forbidden door pay-per-view feels like when WWE does their blood money in the sand shows in Saudi. Everything is a bit off. The storylines are suspended and people who aren't full time with the company are brought into pop ratings. Storylines don't make sense and are shoehorned in to ensure talent are on the air. I may be in the minority, but I've never been less interested in AEW than I am now. I mean, those are two separate people sending me very, very similar thoughts, which means that is representative of a number of other people. And I have seen over the last couple of weeks, a number of our listeners DM and tweet me that they are becoming less interested in AEW than they have been before. And I think this goes back, Chris, to what you were talking about earlier, which is the booking has largely been a mess, not just for Forbidden Door, but really even going into Double or Nothing. It just, that show did not have a lot of juice and it really underdelivered and underperformed as far as I'm concerned. Now, it sold, you know, 150, 155,000 uh, buys in terms of pay-per-view. So it did well, you know, from a monetary standpoint, but I didn't enjoy it. I do find myself enjoying individual aspects of AEW more than I ever have before. The MJF Wardlow storyline, I absolutely loved the way they did that. Um, obviously, I had a lot of praise for the opening segment on Dynamite, and I loved the, the Dax match against Osprey, although it's really tough to have a bad match against Osprey. So there's individual things, I think, that are moving in a positive direction. I've been very critical of the women's division, and I have to say these two matches back-to-back -back that we got on Rampage and Dynamite may have been the two best women's matches back-to-back -back that we've gotten in a single week of reviewing AEW. So that's a positive. And that division has improved from a talent perspective, even though they still get zero time on television. But aside from those positives, everything else does feel like it's worse than it's ever been before. The Ring of Honor in injection has been done poorly. The New Japan injection has been done poorly. Maybe Tony, we've talked about it for such a long time, maybe he really is being stretched too thin. Like when people talk about that, it's seen as an unfair criticism or a illegitimate criticism of AEW. Maybe the roster is legitimately too large. Again, seen as an illegitimate criticism of AEW. Maybe it's a legitimate one. Maybe these things are all true and people just don't want to admit it. But yeah, AEW, it is taking a step back in many ways in which it had been extremely successful previously. And right now, when I look at the product, especially not just going into Forbidden Door, but even coming out of Forbidden Door, I don't really know that I'm that excited about it. I'm not necessarily saying I'm uber excited about WWE because there's a lot about that that I'm not excited about either. Yeah. But 
it does feel like the summer is supposed to be a time where the competition ends. There's no football. There's no NBA. That's It's all about to end. And it feels like both WWE and AEW are kind of rudderless right now and not moving in the positive direction that they both should be moving in. Yeah, they're both missing direction. And part of that is major injury to one of your top faces. Obviously, that's something, you know, you didn't couldn't have expected Cody Rhodes and CM Punk and doing all this stuff. But, you know, I, I just I think AEW just needs to figure out what it wants to be. It still feels just all over the place all the time. And look, the, the shows, the, the, the atmospheres at the shows are great. I've been to several. I'm going to Blood and Guts. The, the the crowds are really into them and are they you know they've still got that good entering crowd but there were a lot of unsold tickets for that dynamite last night in St. Louis and I just feel like you need to like if I were doing it I would make dynamite where you put all the big names every every week the the biggest names you have they're dynamite you make rampage essentially the B show where you don't do as much important stuff it's typically filmed after dynamite anyway so it's fine it's just it, 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 there needs to be I think some tiers of kind of who's most important who's the next level who's this it just feels like everybody's in the same pot and sometimes that's good sometimes you do a cm punk versus john silver and and that's interesting and it's new and it's fresh but while aw does a good job of raising the floor to make everybody feel somewhat important they don't do a good job of raising the ceiling where people feel like they're as big as the company and CM Punk was that, and he's not there. MJF was that, and he's not around because they're doing some sort of angle or, or whatever it is. So you've got him not on. He's he's another name right there who's not on the Forbidden Door show. So you've just trip. You kind of got to set your order here. I think of who are the most important people, who are the people we need to feature on Dynamite every night. These are the people we're pushing the most, more than other people. Right now, it still feels like. Just a mix of everybody in the same yeah. bowl. And, and, I, I and it's it okay to be more settled. And it's okay if that's cyclical. Like, it's okay if you rotate people in and out, but it seems like they try to fit every. Like, by the way, Andrade came back. Where the hell's Andrade? Like, and Malachi Black, I know he has a qualifying match next week, but it's like they try to fit as many people as they possibly can into every show. And they do a lot of that through the attacks and stuff. But even then, there's still a lot of people being left out. I'd rather them stop trying to do that except that they can only put so many people into every show and do a full cycle of it where, as you said, some of those other people, if they're not on Dynamite, they're on Rampage and that's Rampage. I don't need the JAS storyline being played out across Dynamite and Rampage. Allow Rampage to have some of its own stuff, you know, allow it, you know, I guess you have the stupid ROH thing. It's a really bad example, but the Jade Cargill stuff, allow that just to happen on Rampage. Let Thunder Rosa and the main women's title, since you only do one segment, let that one be on Dynamite every week. If you want to uh, push up Jade Cargill because Rosa needs a week or two off, sure, that can be on Dynamite for a couple weeks. Do another women's storyline. Allow that to play out on Rampage for a couple weeks. It's okay to cycle it. It's not okay to do what they're doing, which is try to throw everything at the fan and hope everything sticks when it clearly is not working right now. And this gets back to, I don't think, you, I don't know if you came back to this, but you wanted to, which was Excalibur, which is that, Oh, did I every forget, show, forget to give him his just I don't know. Okay, I, I don't did. think you did, so I want to bring that up. But every every show toward, in the final like five minutes, he is asked to list off like 10 matches in a minute about what's coming up like over the next like two weeks. It's too much. Like you, you got to like, it is. It, it's just that that's too much. 
The flowers I wanted to give uh, Excalibur were in the Harwood and Osprey match. He explained the intricacies of New Japan, the IWGP governing body, etc., etc., better in like 90 seconds to start that match than AEW has in its three years of existence through all of its mentions of New Japan and all the times New Japan people have showed up on the screen. So I wanted to give him credit for that, but you're right. The way he runs through that shit at the end of every show, like it's a gimmick now, and I understand it's a gimmick and they're just going to keep doing it, but it kind of also is ridiculous. You know, it, it does mm-hmm. seem like it, it's it's frantic and you're like, all right, all right, all right, man. I just want to watch the match. Like it's the main event. I want to see what, what's going on in the main event. All right, look, this was another long show. It's a three show week. I really hope it's not a four show week. I'd like to take a couple days off and come back Tuesday and talk about everything that we have going on in the world of WWE, but we'll see. I'm not going to make any promises into our schedule because I don't know what is coming up. What I will tell you is we had a really good WWE episode this past this week, not this past week, this week on Tuesday. Make sure you listen to that. And please don't forget if you were here and you're like, where's the NXT stuff? I did a whole separate NXT show on Wednesday, along with an interview one-on-one with Raquel Rodriguez. It was a great conversation. I love speaking to her. I'm really, really glad that WWE uh, gave us the opportunity and that she got the chance to join us. Please do not forget to listen to that episode on Wednesday as well. Also, do not forget to join us on Twitter at Getting Overcast. And please remember that the Getting Over Wrestling Podcast. So head on over to Apple Podcasts and Spotify. Leave those five-star ratings on Apple. Also leave a review. Tell everyone why you listen, why you subscribe, and why they should as well. Thanks once again to Vintage Chris Benini for joining me. I hope that cough gets better, buddy. Uh, for Chris, this is the Silver King, Adam Silverstein. As of right now, we plan to see you on Tuesday, but who knows when we will talk next. At this point, though, I'm going to leave you with three final words. Bye for now. <laughs>